A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and of course you would be right, but then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. Today, we are going to be joined by Conservative MP Sir Gary Streeter. Gary has served in Parliament for over 30 years, but he has recently made the decision to step down at the next general election. We'll find out why and get his reflections on spending three decades in the House of Commons. But first... If 200 school children disappeared in the UK, a whole year group suddenly missing, their whereabouts completely unknown and vanished into a dangerous world, how would we react? Well, last week, news broke that 200 asylum-seeking children are missing from hotels managed by the Home Office. 88% of those children are Albanian nationals. 187 of them are 16 to 18 years old, but 13 of them are younger than 16. Government ministers admit that they have no idea of their whereabouts. Part of the problem is that we have no way of tracing these children. They are, for good reason, not detained in their hotels. So some may have left to join friends or family who are in the UK. However, a whistleblower from one Home Office hotel said that she'd seen children, and I quote, being picked up from outside the building, taken from the street by traffickers. Sussex police arrested two men on suspicion of intent to commit human trafficking after two children housed at one of the hotels were found in their car. It is highly probable that many have been kidnapped, trafficked, put into forced labour and coerced into organised crime. It's always true that you can get the measure of a society by seeing how it treats its most vulnerable and marginalised people. Jesus says to us, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. When we see someone hunger, we should give them something to eat. When we find a stranger, we should invite them in. If someone needs clothes, we should clothe them. These children are from all over the world. Albania, Afghanistan, Egypt, Pakistan, Vietnam. They are strangers to us, but they are made in the image of God. They are individuals of immense worth. The story was front page news. Well, it was for 24 hours. 100 charities wrote to the Prime Minister denouncing the child protection scandal. MPs were given one whole hour in Parliament to question the government about the missing children. But where is the special police operation to find these children? The Minister of State for Immigration, Robert Jenrick, said, we should take the care of these minors as seriously as we would take that of our own children. These are, in my view, the right words, but the reaction falls far short of how we would act if they were our children. In our own strength, it's nearly impossible for us, as fallen, broken human beings, to match the affection for and emotion we hold towards our own children. As Christians, we know the value that Jesus places on children. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We need to remember these asylum seekers in this light and see them through God's eyes. Some people will suggest that Albanians are unworthy of refuge. In Parliament last week, Conservative MP Jonathan Gullis shouted across the chamber that these missing children shouldn't have come here illegally. If it was British children going missing, would we consider it acceptable for an MP to claim that they had it coming? In any event, in 2022, 51% of processed asylum claims from Albanian nationals, they were granted. They were considered as genuine refugees. Now, given recent crossings, we might expect that number to be lower this year, but it's still a reminder 
that it would be lazy, inaccurate, and unfair of us to write them off because, ah, it's only Albania. The fact is that for those in Albania, the rule of law is absent, corruption prospers, and power is embroiled in the economic influence of the illegal drug trade. Albanians are also the second most likely nationality to be trafficked into modern slavery in the UK, accounting for 15% of human trafficking victims, slaves in other words. Even if you do not think they were fleeing mortal danger to begin with, they may well be in mortal danger now. And anyway, just in case I didn't mention it, these are children who have now gone missing. The Bible doesn't tell us how open our borders should be or how many asylum seekers to accept, but it absolutely does tell us that we should love our neighbour as ourselves, that everyone counts as our neighbour, and that we should care for children, especially those with no one else to care for them. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest, Sir Gary Street, the Member of Parliament for South West Devon. Gary, welcome to the show again. Thank you for coming back. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Now, the last time we spoke to you, you talked about how you felt called into politics. Talk us through briefly how that came about. It was not something you'd planned to do from a very young age, was it? No, not at all. I got to the age of 30 without even thinking about politics. And indeed, I was one of those sort of charismatic house church Christians in those days who are now looking back, describe myself as being like a cabbage for Jesus. We knew nothing about what was going on in our country or our local community. And so when I, during 1985, this was how long ago it was, Tim, I'm sure you weren't even born then. Um, we I was becoming very unsettled, and every time I read the Word of God, sort of law, the words law and justice kept leaping out at me. And over a period of weeks and months, the elders of the church agreed with me that God was calling me into something, but the frustration was we didn't know what it was. So in the end, my wife said to me, it was about, it was, well, actually, it was the 5th of December, 1985. Um, she said, just go away, go, you know, fast and pray, and don't come back till you've heard from God. And then sort of six o'clock that night, came back and she said, have you heard anything? And I said, yes, I believe God is calling us into politics. And she went, oh, no. And she was right. <laughs> what, what an adventure that became. And I knew nothing about it. So a few weeks ago, you announced your decision to step down at the next general election, which may be next year or even as late as January 2025. Does that amount to a calling out of politics and into something else? It's a very good question, Tim. And, and I can't say that I've been called out of politics in the same way as I'm absolutely passionately sure I was called into it. But I think over the last couple of years, my wife and I have sort of felt that, you know, I've run my race, to, to use sort of Paulian terms. And we've been grappling with, well, should I, should I retire at the next election? And sort of ups and downs on that decision and, and prayer and discussion and what have you and in the end I think we both felt it was absolutely the right decision and having made that decision probably sort of autumn of last year announcing it I think in November um it, that we've had a tremendous piece about it and mm. I'm now convinced it was the right decision and that a new season beckons but I can't say God has called me out of politics in quite the same way as he called me into it that's really interesting now of course you represent your constituency you serve the people of uh, southwest Devon and you will remain the Member of Parliament up until the point that uh, the Prime Minister asks His Majesty to dissolve Parliament to call a general election, which will be probably sometime in 2024, but we can't be absolutely certain. Talk us through the process of what happens next. So as you um, 
announce your decision to retire, you, of course, carry on as Member of Parliament. Yes. But a seat that we would normally expect the Conservatives to win next time round, the local Conservative Association has to go through the business of selecting somebody to fill your shoes, so to speak. That's right. And that process is probably going to begin, uh, well, it's so, sort of beginning now, but it, within four or five months, I would imagine that my successor would be... Um, announced, selected by about 400 people, who's, that's the sort of membership of the local Conservative Party. And of course, it, it is a seat that has nearly always returned, well, has always returned a Conservative Member of Parliament. And although we can take nothing for granted these days, Tim, as you well know, um, we would expect it to do so again. So the, my successor, the person once he or she is chosen, um, I think could have strong expectations of mm. becoming the next member of Parliament for South West Devon, and I will be doing all I can to support that person and ease them in gently, while at the same time as trying to finish strong and to sort mm. of get across the finishing line, you know, with with my head held high. Yes, and it's not happened yet, and your select successor hasn't been selected yet. But how do you imagine you might feel to be in a situation where, if I could put it like this, you are, you're kind of sharing the seat for a year or so? I would say as, as a sort of a period of transition, I think I'm going to be fine, particularly as we, there is a local favourite, someone that I know well, and I, I will certainly be quietly supporting. Um, and if she is successful, then it'll be almost like me introducing um, mm. the next person to uh, the, the many stakeholders there are in any constituency, you know, the charities, the businesses, the churches and so on. Um, so I think that will be fine. It, if I'm honest, uh, I am feeling tired and therefore... I don't think it's going to be a burden to, to have someone alongside me saying, well, you, why don't you go and do that? You know, just go and introduce yourself. I'll just sort of sit here and sit on the veranda with a rug over my legs and have a cup of coffee with my wife. <laughs> it sounds delightful, Gary. Sounds marvellous. Um, so we're in uh, 2023 now. Uh, you were elected in 1992, so it's 31 years ago. Uh, that's some time. You, of course, entered Parliament in an election that the Conservatives weren't really expected to win in 92, but they did. How do you see the next general election shaping up? Do you get a sense that um, Rishi Sunak could do a John Major, so to speak, and win despite everybody thinking that he probably won't? Um, it's possible. Um, people constantly say, you know, is this 92 or is this 97? And of course, it's, it's neither. It's 2023. Mm. Uh, but it, I think we're sort of somewhere in between the two. Um, I think Rishi Sunak, I, I have a, a tremendous faith in Rishi Sunak. I think he's terrific and will lead the country well. But I also recognise that many of my colleagues have been behaving badly. And that sort of that keeps bringing us down and people are getting very fed up with uh, one or two of the sort of scandals that, that are knocking around at the moment. So I think, I think though, in a sense, those two, if we're not careful, might cancel each other out. And... I expect the gap between us and Labour to be much closer at the next election. It's possible that we, Rishi Sunak could get us over the line. But if I'm honest, I am expecting um, the Labour Party, perhaps in coalition, um, is the most likely outcome that, to be at least the largest party. Um, and, you know, in a democracy, we'll have been in power 14 years, be a conservative Labour government for 14 years. We do have to have a, a refreshing of the pot from time to time. Otherwise, it gets very stale. So, you know, it wouldn't be a disaster. I think the key thing about Rishi is if, we, if we're going to lose, I don't think we'll be wiped out as we might have been under other leaders, other leaders. shall we say. Um, I think if we do lose, we, we will hopefully lose small and get back um, and back in contention quickly. Mm -hmm.
A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Gary Streeter, Sir Gary Streeter, the Member of Parliament for South West Devon, who's been the Member of Parliament for South West Devon for nearly, well, more than 30 years and chooses to step down in the next general election. Gary, what's changed? How has the role of being a Member of Parliament changed in the last 30 years, would you say? Yeah, I, Tim, I think the essence of the job is the same. You know, we are elected to represent our constituents, serve our constituency and, you know, serve our country, make our country better. But so the essence, I think, remains the same, but almost everything else about the job has, has been transformed. Bearing in mind, when I was first elected, there was no Internet. At least if there was, I wasn't aware of it. No one was aware of it that I knew that there was no smartphones, no mobile phones, no emails, no tweets, no social media. It was a very different world. Um, and so, so some things have improved. For example, when I was first elected in 1992, spouses could not come into the House of Commons and sort of spend time with you, or they had to go into the what's called the family room, which is just mm -hmm. off central lobby, and they could only be they could only stay there, and you had to go and collect them, you know, to take them for a meal or something. It, it was it was primitive, and of course mm -hmm. the hours were a lot longer. And you know, you youngsters don't know you're born, Tim. To be honest, we used to go through the night regularly, sort of two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. Um, voting, and that was daft too. So much fam uh, friendlier family hours now and better for spouses and so on. So, And also with, with phones and what have you, the separation between... This is the worst thing about job from my point of view, being apart from my wife. Yeah. And I used to come up on the Sunday night and go back on the Friday, and there's no mobile phones in between, you know, a telephone call a day if she was lucky sort of thing, if I was lucky. Mm. So that's, that's much different now. But th on the other hand, the advance of technology, which always changes human behaviour, doesn't it? Mm. Social media, the immediacy of everything, 24-7 media, constituency expectations. They send you an email, they see a programme on a Sunday night, they bash off an email to their MP, and they, they were sort of, they're emailing again on Monday afternoon if you haven't replied, you know, and so if you've got another 120 emails to do with as well. So I think that uh, the, there's a lot more pressure Mm. on people than they used to be but the essence of the job and it's still a privilege serve your constituents serve your country make the place better and i'm delighted to report to your listeners that the vast majority of members of parliament are, are here for the right reasons mm. they want to serve their country and they're doing their absolute best would you say that the the lot of a christian mp is much different at all today than it was in 92 i think there are more of us here now when I came in 92, there was a sort of a, a Bible study once a week and two or three of us would gather and talk about, you know, whether it was the Greeks or the Romans who, you know, invaded Babylon. It was, sort of, it was very erudite and not much spirituality going around. And as you know, the Christians in Parliament now is flourishing and we have lots of Bible studies and events and prayer groups and, and a wonderful chapel service, which you'll be speaking at later on in, in, the, in the month, I think. Um, so I think we are flourishing here at the moment. There's more support for, for members, uh, Christian members of parliament. When I was first elected in 1992, many Christians would say to me, but how can you be a Christian and get involved in politics? You know, it's, coin a phrase, a mucky business, Tim. Um, fewer people say that now. I think there's been a sea change in the attitude of churches, which is basically, yeah, politics is about everything. Why wouldn't you want men and women of faith and values to be involved in looking after the poor, deciding when we go to war, how much tax to raise, how to run our national health service? You would want men and women of faith and values to be involved in that. And reality was for a hundred years or so, we fled the field and we left it to others. Um, actually, and now that we're back in, I think we're making a, an impression and an impact according to individual people's faith and calling.
You've, you've chaired Christians in Parliament for, is it more than 10 years now, Gary? It's 12 years, but 12 let's years, not then, talk about right. that. But I, and so a significant amount of the growth of the organisation, I'd say, has been due to your leadership and your wisdom. I'm, I'm very, very clear that that's the case. Uh, I wonder whether, and I absolutely observe the same as you, um, having been in this place a little while, but not quite as long as you, that there has been a growth in the number of MPs here, particularly across party, um, who uh, have uh, a declared faith in Christ. That being the case, do you think it's easier or harder now for a politician in the public eye to be open about their faith, even to share it with people? You know, when I was first elected, it was quite tough for Labour members of the Parliament to be overtly Christian. So I think that's changed and there's much more clearance for that now. But I would say, too, there's a recognition that what our constituents are looking for in their representative is authenticity. And in a sense, they don't, almost don't mind what that looks like as long as it is real. So if you stand up for election and say, yeah, well, I'm a practicing Christian, you know, that's why I'm here. Blah, blah, blah. I think people provide they see it's genuine and not something you are doing to try and gain an advantage if it is an advantage and it might not be. I think it works, but it, it works equally to say, look, I, I respect all of you people out there, people of faith and so on. I myself, I'm an atheist. So, you know, if it's authentic, that works too. So I, th I think it is easier because authenticity is the name of the game. And with social media and with the spotlight of the media, I think anyone who isn't, you know, anyone who's sort of living a life uh, of hypocrisy is qu very quickly exposed. And um, hopefully as, as authentic Christians, um, there is now a way forward to be who you are. I think that's right. And of course, social media is in part to blame or is partly blamed, whether it's entirely true that we do, or right that we do blame it, for what is considered to be a greater and more heated set of divisions in our society than perhaps there were 30 years ago. Although I have to say politics still felt pretty heated back then too. Do you buy the uh, proposition that politics is more polarised and society is more divided now than it was in the early 90s? I think um, society is more divided. And I think back to the London Olympics when the whole country, I think, came together and there was a real sense of unity and oneness as we were cheering on our favourites. And then, of course, the great Brexit debate happened. And let's face it, it cut, it cut the country in two. It was more or less, wasn't it, 50-50 and, and very deep passions. And I, I don't think we've, we by no means have we recovered from that. But I don't think politics is more aggressive or divisive than it ever was. Think back to the 1980s, you know, sort of the hard left and all that sort of stuff going on. But it also... You know, going back to the 19th century, the 20th century, very passionate politics. Mm. As you know, we in the chamber of the House of Commons, we have red lines. You're not allowed to speak beyond the red line because it's two sword lengths apart. And uh, so obviously, in the back in the good old days when members of parliament were carrying their swords with them, you know, tempers were getting heated then. That's why those rules were introduced, so you can't be stabbing distance of, of the people on the other side. So... No, I think our politics has always been adversarial and passionate, and I think that, that that's fine. But I, I do worry about the deep divisions in our society, and I'm not quite sure at the moment what we're going to be able to do to, to heal that rift. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that it's, I mean, the C.S. Lewis line about the snobbery of chronology works both ways. Sometimes people can think today is so much better than yesterday uh, without really thinking as whether or not why. 
we can also think the opposite as well, can't we? That mm. yesterday was so much better than today. But the observation that society feels very divided, there's a lot of anger out there. I think that's accurate. What do you think Christian politicians can do to speak into that situation to promote truth, but also to do so in a gentle way that heals those divisions? Or is Christianity itself just too divisive to do that? See, I don't, I don't think Christianity is divisive because I think authentic Christianity has a tremendous respect for people who take a different view and a compassion and a love for them. Um, and and it, you know, at our best, we should not be judgmental. Uh, of people who choose a different path as, as Jesus wasn't. And we just got to read the Gospels to see how he kept crossing boundaries and crossing barriers and reaching out the Samaritan woman, you know, being the fact she was a woman and a Samaritan and so on. And probably a, a woman, you know, right at the bottom of the pack as well. And, and he just crossed all of those boundaries. So at our best, I think we are part of the solution, not part of the problem. And I think we, we do need to conduct ourselves uh, with integrity, uh, with compassion, prayerfully, uh, disagreeing well where we have to. We we should not be the ones, and, and you are a great example of this, Tim. You know, you speak with great passion in the House of Commons. You're a brilliant advocate, but you you never play the person. You know, you play the issue. Um, and I think if, if more of us could follow that example, that, that, that would certainly help to heal some of these rifts. Oh, uh, Gary, I was going to say you are a great example of all of the above as well. So, um Sir Gary Streeter, what a joy to have you with us. Um, and uh, you're not sailing off into the sunset just yet, so we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. God bless. Each week we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question that you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. What I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. Now, I must admit that at the moment, the pot of questions is actually relatively small. So if you drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk, there is a very strong chance I will be answering it on air in an episode over the next few weeks. So please do get in touch. This week, Sue in Telford has done exactly that. And she asks the following. I often think about the importance of having good friends to help through life's struggles. How important is it that for those working in politics and how do you manage keeping good friendships in such a busy profession? It's a great question, Sue. I mean, for, for me, I would say that at times in my period as a member of parliament, particularly when I was leader or party president, I allowed myself to get so busy that I would be a very bad friend um, and lose touch almost with people who've been very precious to me for many years, some Christian, some non-Christian even lose touch with, you know, midweek Bible study and be out of fellowship. That's a really dangerous thing for any Christian in terms of their growth and their perseverance. But actually, we shouldn't make those who we love and those who love us casualties of the career or the vocation that we have followed. And so my advice to anybody starting out, I don't know if you've ever heard of the this sort of management exercise where you, you, you have an imaginary bucket and you've got to put various things in it to fill it up. And you put the rocks in the bucket first, and then you can fill the smaller, less important stuff around the rocks. Your family and your friends and Christian fellowship should be your first rock and build around that. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, you know the names of every single one of those missing children, uh, refugees from different parts of the world 
who are somewhere, probably, in the United Kingdom. They're missing, but they're known to you. So we ask, Lord, that your hand would be upon them and that you would bring them to places of safety. And we just pray that you give us a real heart to love our neighbour and to remember that our neighbour is not always somebody like us or somebody we know or somebody we even approve of, um, that we are indeed to reach out and, and give sacrificial love to those who are indeed the other. Uh, Lord, we just also thank you for those who serve in, in this mucky business of politics. We thank you for Gary Streeter. We thank you for others who served mostly on the back benches, looking after their constituencies and seeking to act with integrity over many, many years. We pray you bless people as they um, consider their future at this point in a parliament, um, that those who are to retire um, would do so um, graciously and with uh, gratitude and, uh, and, and in a way which means they continue to serve their communities. And we pray that those who, uh, who, who are not yet MPs, Christians who are maybe thinking about a, a role in politics, that you'd guide them. And if they're meant to go for it, um, may that happen. Um, so, Lord, I, we just lift all these uh, people, our politicians, and these missing children up to you, knowing that you have called them all by name and you know them all each one by one. Amen. Well, thank you very much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. See you soon.